Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, Matt. How are hey. you doing? Yeah, good. How are you? All okay? Oh, okay. Busy weekend. A um, bit of Formula E action down in London. So I was doing some work with Channel 4. Um, Jake Dennis was uh, in line for the, or hoping to seal his, his world title for the first time, which he did. So they bring me in to give, a, a, I guess, a kind of sports psychology insight into dealing with pressure and, and winning in front of a home crowd and all that sort of stuff. He's the first, is he the first Brit title winner of it? I'm trying to think. Yeah. 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 First mm. one. So yeah. you've had, there's been a few top guys in there like Sam Bird and mm. um, yeah, who else can I think of? Oh, sort of mad. Um, yeah, there's a few who are, you know, have been close, but I think, yeah, Jake is the first one from Britain to win it and it was great for him to win in front of the, the crowd in, in London. Did you do you have you watched much of the Formula E? I, I watched it previously, but I didn't I didn't see it at the weekend because I was watching the F one kind of similarish time. I think. Yeah, it's I've been out four years ago to Rome and I drove a Gen two Formula E car on the circuit there, so I've had a little bit of experience with it, um, and then just watched it as a fan online. Not been to many races, but it is it, it's unique and it's it's I'm really impressed at what they're trying to do with the sport. It's I think there's still room for improvement. There's still headroom, but um, you know, I think they're they're well aware of that. But it's yeah, I think the the, the racing on the Saturday in particular really sort of showcase the the best parts mm-hmm. of that form of motorsport. But no, it's good fun, and um, you can see what it means to to the whole team to become world champion. It was really quite cool just being that close to it all. I interviewed Jake on the on the Wednesday beforehand in London. Had a chat with him to see how he was shaping up and yeah he, he dealt with it really well it was a really frenetic race and there was there were crashes and the the two main rivals from the opposite team came together and basically took each other out or took the main main rival out which was bizarre uh, there were no <laughs> team orders there should have been team orders to say let yeah. you let you go through they didn't and and they paid the paid the penalty but um yeah it was really good really enjoyed it what about you anything exciting you know not in some exotic part of the world. No, so I had no sport thing, but I, I, I'd written this book, Nazare, like I did a season with a big wave surface in Nazare, and it had its Australia launch. And so I had to do sort of weird TV and radio interviews at bizarre times of night. So I'd gone out for the evening um, to this place and then had to dash back to my office to do an interview and then go back out for the evening. So I had that. But, oh, um, cool. And how's the book been received? I think it's going well, but I've never written one before. So you, you've got more experience than I do on this of, of, of <laughs> books. So, uh, but I, th- I mean, everyone seems to be making positive noises, but it's hardly like people go, "Oh God, they're hardly going to say your book's crap, are they?" Or slag it off to you. Well, maybe. they do to me. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, we've joined. We've got a guest waiting already, nice and eager oh, wow. and early. Um, Who have we got? This is a very exciting. Well, if I can uh, pronounce it correctly, it's Henning Vine or Henning Venn. But um, he'll, he'll correct us on Yeah, we'll check it. <laughs> <laughs> either, either way, I've got it wrong. But um, if, I, if I let him in, and we'll, we'll, we'll go for it. Hello. Hello. Hi, Henning. How are you doing? Very well. How are you? Very well. You've got a King of the Mountains jersey on. Or Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So you're a big cycling fan from what, what we understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I didn't win it, I'm afraid. I was given it. Uh, yeah, I was at the uh, tour last year at one stage. And, uh, well, as you then know, they come around with them, uh, with them cars and they hand out uh, the T-shirts. <laughs> Fantastic. But you, you've done, you do a bit of cycling. You were riding, was it from Hastings? into Europe and you've done a fair bit of touring and, and mm -hmm. you know, it's a bit of a, a hobby of yours. Yeah, big big time, yeah. So and when I was living in London, uh, that all fell a bit by the wayside. But since I've left London and in Hastings, I'm back to essentially what I always used to do, uh, cycle a lot. So tell us and about I, your, your journey. Sorry, Chris. Was your, your, you, you set off from, from Hastings. and How far did you get? It sounded a, a monumental journey. Well, I went to uh, New Hampton. Uh, not New Hampton, New Haven, took the ferry over to Dieppe. And then from Dieppe went through the north of France, through Belgium to where I'm from in Germany, uh, the Ruhr Valley, the big industrial part in the West. From there I went on to Berlin and then down to Prague. Uh, and then from there straight through Bohemian Forest into uh, uh, Austria. And then in Austria, it was starting to get a bit warm. And that's why I decided not to go further south. And I saw na 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 na. Instead, I went west and went through Austria and Switzerland uh, to Basel, and then just diagonally uh, back uh, across France. So it was quite a loose plan then. You could just you were just riding and seeing how far you got and stopping at random places. You didn't have a an itinerary or that doesn't sound yeah. very German. If if you don't <laughs> <think so. laughs> well, that's that's how, that's how I tend to do the bike tours, though. So because. Depends so much on what, what's the wind like that day. So if you book everything up well in advance and uh, you've scheduled yourself to do, I don't know, 80 miles or something, if you go into the wind, it's really hard work. And if you've got the wind behind you, you're there by midday. So um, so therefore, rather, I try, try to always be in the saddle, actually moving for at least five and a half hours a day. Wow. And then after that, I or at that point, then I make a decision what what's the realistic place to get to. And had you done many miles before in terms of preparing for for this this adventure? Had you been out in the bike much before, or did you kind of just just get well, back in and go for it? I ride here in Hastings with the club, and uh, so I always do do my miles. And I haven't got a car, so I sit on the bike every day anyway to get me shopping and whatnot. And uh, yeah, so I uh, tend to do quite, and I, I, uh, I was on the um, um, Canaries uh, for two months last year in November, December. So, and wow. so there have been quite a lot of longer stints. So you, you didn't go through the process that a lot of people do when they, they do a, a major sort of point to point ride or a charity ride. And, you know, they're physically fit and they've, you know, they do other things, but it's just not, not the familiarity of riding in one position for hour after hour, day after day, and realizing it's actually your, your backside and your hands and your neck and your feet that gets sore, not, not so much your, your legs and your lungs, it's the, the points of contact on the bike. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that, that after a while, once you're... I mean, the way I went about it is I thought, after every day I said, was that more fun than not doing this? And the answer was always yes. And when the point comes, we say, nah. I mean, sitting on the sofa would be sitting on the bike, then it's time to go home. That's a great way to do it. That's, I should have done that more when I was <laughs> Not sure I got much done, but yeah, that's a great way to do it, though. So have you got any other plans, any other cycle rides that you're going to do, or is it is it just uh, play no, by ear? No, the plan is another one from mid-September, uh, 
set off here mid-September, make my way to Italy, go around Italy and then be back here by the end of October. Wow. Have you, have you documented these things? Like, are they going to be in a, because it would be a great sort of broadcast or book or something. I imagine you get Then it's work, there. isn't it? Yeah, there must be, there must be a few little mishaps along the way, I'd imagine. Yeah, but then, then it's work, isn't okay, it? Okay, okay. You don't want, so, um, yeah, I mean, people always ask, why don't you do something with it? But you know what it's like if you want to shoot, say, a cycle adventure. That's a massive headache, isn't it? Because you first have to cycle to that point, set up the camera, camera, then cycle back, right through the shot. Once you have done that, you have to ride back again to the camera, pick the camera up again, and then set off again. And then do that 10 times a day. That's not a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Do you know there's a, uh, a guy called Mark Beaumont who set uh, around the world cycle record. He's done many like, super endurance uh, challenges and records. And I remember thinking that at one point, because he was on his own for 90% of the, or 99% of his journey. But he'd have these little clips of him out, you know, setting this world record across the, the middle of nowhere in Australia. And you suddenly realise, hang on a minute, he's, he has had to do exactly that. He's had <laughs> yeah. to stop, set a camera up, go back, do it again. There's, there's 10 seconds or a minute or five minutes he could have saved straight away. But yeah, it's, it's one of these things you never, when you're watching TV, you never think about how they make TV unless unless you've got a little bit of insight into it. It's Especially just... if it's something like you see them on a the long straight or say he's there in the desert and going going miles into the desert, <laughs> getting smaller and smaller. You know full well he has to come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So cycling is not your only sport that you've got a passion for, though, is it? You're, you're, is it football you're into? Yeah, I, I show up on a Monday. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely hopeless. Uh, but uh, it's always uh, it's nice to have a chat with everyone. So that's uh, that's football is great, and that is because it's good social occasion and whatnot. It's, it's, it's only the playing the game that really is the worst part of the evening. <laughs> yeah, it's like do, do you say about golf, isn't it? it? Spells a good walk. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know. Do you, do you play in a specific position in, in football? Or? Well, we just play five a side. So it's just a group of about, I don't know, 14, 16 people on the WhatsApp group. And then the first 10 get the game. And when you were growing up in Germany, you know, I, I always get the feeling that we spent a lot of time training in Germany. I've got a teammate who was born in Germany, was lived in Germany until he was 18 years old, had a German mother and a British father. So I've got a little bit of an insight into what it's like for the for this sort of growing up in Germany. Sport is a massive part of, or it feels like it's a massive part of um, school life. And I don't know, certainly up until maybe 10 or 20 years ago, there were seen more opportunities and coaching and facilities and pathways you could follow to get into sport in Germany. Did you experience that when you were growing up? Were there any opportunities? Were, was it something that you were encouraged into? Well, obviously you could join any club. So if yeah. you wanted to play tennis, you could join the tennis club. If you wanted to do whatever sport you were, you, you could join a football club, you could join the chess club or whatever you wanted to do. But it had to be you making that decision. So right. you, so it, it's, it's not like, I would funnily enough, I would say it's almost slightly different because in Britain with the private schools, they've got all their cricket facilities and this, that and the other. In many ways, if you go private school in uh, in Britain, you're probably more encouraged to do sport than than in Germany. Really, because they have they have regional sports schools, don't they, in Germany? So you can actually go to do a sport and you get your education at the same I time. I tell you what, I mean, if that was around at my time, I certainly would not have been on the long list. 
Never mind. I don't know how Mike, because my old teammate, Phil Hines, he's, I think he must be about five foot nine and he was in the rowing team. So I don't know how he got into the rowing team. You know, he ended up in cycling, but, you know, he's rowing. Obviously, the guys are massively tall. Um, yeah. So maybe, maybe not. Maybe he didn't have to be that great at sport to get into a sports school. Apologies <laughs> <laughs> to Phil. I, I remember, I remember we at school, there was one day where a few of us were being called to the uh, to the headmaster and uh, he was handing out certificates. And what had happened was I somehow ended up on the chess team and we won the county championships. And at the same time, the basketball team also won the county championships. And essentially, us Chesnot, we were treated like second-class citizens. We were quickly given the certificates and then with the basketball players, oh, he was talking to them and said, it's just they're a foot taller than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> it's always the way, isn't it? Yeah. You know, these, the big, tall athletes, they get all the attention. Never mind. Yeah. Not, not like the mathletes. Was, was football the number one sporting love, though? Because I know that's something you've been more involved in now. But as a kid growing up in Germany, was that having I mean, a big... In sport. Germany, it would be football. But then on a regional level, it might be different. There is some parts where handball is very popular. So I don't know if... Uh, Britain did take part in the 2012 Home, home Olympics. They, they did field a handball team, which interestingly, because there is no grassroots handball here in Britain, they did play second tier in Germany as a, as a team and uh, got, got absolutely walloped week after week and then over time got a bit better so, so that they avoided embarrassment at the Home Olympics. And uh, yeah, that's a game only takes seven players. That means very popular in the smaller places where you wouldn't necessarily have 11, 14, 11 or 14 players to play the football. So uh, handball would be sport number one there. And where I'm from, funnily enough, for whatever bizarre reason, basketball in my hometown. So wow. did, you, did you play that or you were a football Yeah, at school we did play a lot more basketball than football. What's the reason for that region being into basketball? Is it just a small club that started to do well and it grew or...? Yeah, Are you freakishly tall, or what's the what's the reason? <laughs> no, I think you're right, Chris. It, it was just we the, the club won the uh, championship in '74, uh, then so and then the uh, uh, the headquarters of the German Basketball Association there in my hometown, and it's all stuff like that, and, and as a result of that. It grew and grew and grew. And then once there is more and more people playing, all of a sudden we didn't have one team in the top flight, but at one point three teams in the top flight. And uh, so just success became success. Yeah, exactly. Because there was that, you know, the, the physiological reason that, that that region in China, I'm not sure where it is, where they have, you know, above average height. They're incredibly, they seem to breed these incredibly tall human beings. And uh, it's where Yao Ming um, the NBA basketballer, he he's from that region, and at the Olympics, you see, yeah, it's just it's 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 almost like a different breed of person. They're so tall, and and you get the well, I guess you get the whole spectrum of 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 the of the human race, don't you? You get these, you know, the tiny little gymnasts, and you get the basketballers, and you get all everything in between. But it's when you see these these individuals who are nearly seven foot tall next to normal looking normal sized people, it's it's quite incredible. Yes, so many of them from that one region. In, in Ecuador, uh, half their football team are from Van Valley. Really? Wow. Yeah. And that's the, uh, they, they have got some beans that they eat. 
in that. They're only growing that area. So they were all fed when, from day one on them beans, and apparently they make you excellent, uh, excellent, make you excellent athletes. Well, magic beans. Did you find that out on the road to Rio thing? Did you go? Yes, exactly. We went through there, and uh, for Chris, that was a program in the build-up to the Brazil World Cup in 2014, where we went round to all the South American countries that qualified for the uh, for the World Cup, and then Ecuador, obviously being one of them, and we went to that valley uh, and uh, played a game of, of, of first watched and then joined in a game of football with. Uh, with the with the local kids and uh, yeah, they were, well, it is hard to explain why something like that happens. Did you try the magic beans though? <laughs> did you? Did it make you into a great footballer? No, no, it's a bit like the magic potion in Asterix. So, they, <laughs> so they don't give it to any outsiders. So, uh, uh, right. I, I did all the begging, but I wasn't given any. <laughs> but that was with Mark Watson, is that right? That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah now, what was that whole experience like? That must have been incredible. Oh, that was incredible. That was six weeks traveling around uh, South America, m- meeting retired footballers that you only know from on telly. So that was uh, that was a rather surreal experience. And who was your who was the most memorable player expert that you, you met and spoke to? Uh, well, Fausto Astria was quite something. So in uh, the, the Newcastle forward. Um, so just from his whole demeanor, that he constantly wanted to go out on the piss with everyone, and <laughs> and and his life is a complete circus. Like I don't know what it, what your life is like, Chris, but he was essentially conducting his everyday affairs whilst people took selfies with him. So he <laughs> yeah, Ma- Ma- for- Matt gets that all the time, but not me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You must get that though, Henning. You're you're a very recognisable face on the TV. Yeah, but it's like see, it's predominantly Radio Four. <laughs> my, my, my audience predominantly radio four is not Keith Lemon or nothing, so therefore <laughs> it's a more distinguished audience, I would say, and more uh, so they, they they leave you in peace, generally well, speaking. Are you well known in Germany? You know, because no, you're a big no. name over here. But can you walk around in Germany and people just walk past you, don't know who you are? Mm, yeah. Wow, amazing. I mean, there, there must there must have been some. It must be the German media must have picked up the fact that you have made this transition and you've moved across the UK and you've become this comedy um, superstar, in you know, and against you know, basically against the the, the, <laughs> the the run of you know all this of the historical gags about the Germans and their sense of humour and the fact that you've been able to come over here and show that actually no, you know, what was it? You they were the the London, you know, the, the German. Ambassador for comedy for London was that that the, the role that you the title that you yeah were German to comedy ambassador that was it sorry yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you can't wait for other people to bestow that on you sometimes you have to put it along a bit <laughs> <laughs> but what the German media I mean they must have picked up on all that what what have they made of your your career so far uh, I whenever there has been any request nine times out of ten I said I don't want to let I, I I don't want to deal with them because there is just no upside. Because as is, I can go to Germany, no one knows who I am, and that's exactly the way I like it. Uh, whereas, well, that would only, being in the German media would only be of interest if I wanted to have a career in Germany. But I've been living in Britain for such a long time, I don't know what I could contribute to, to anything in Germany. I can tell everyone what it was like 25 years ago, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but would your, would your stand-up work in Germany? If you did your routine in Germany, what would the audiences make of that, do you think? 
I think to have anything worthwhile to say, you have to live in that place. Right. So, and as I'm not, so all the cultural reference points would be totally alien to me. But Chris, I was going to say, did you see, this was surreal, but did you see him getting name-checked by King Charles? Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, exactly the German ambassador. Well, you, you, you tell the story, because it's quite, quite bizarre, no? That is bizarre. That is absolutely surreal. Yeah, well, uh, Charlie, he had recently had, uh, he did that visit to Berlin, didn't he? And he spoke in Bundestags on the German parliament. So I got a text message from someone back home saying his mother had just fallen off the chair. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, Charles apparently mentioned me in Bundestag and I say, how odd. So and then about three seconds later, I get a, a video snippet from from a maid with well, with exactly then. And I said, well, that must have actually happened. <laughs> so what was the context of it? Why did he mention you? Uh, as a really good cyclist. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> No, he, he tried to find a common ground between Brits and Germans, and then he wanted to uh, said something about we like to laugh about each other, and then he had the example of uh, Monty Python, who, who had quite a big footprint in, in Germany, and then saying in the same way that Henning Wien does it in, uh, 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 has shown the foibles of Germans in, uh, in Britain. So then obviously he says that in Parliament, no one has ever heard of me. <laughs> but because it's the King of England, a foreign dignitary, so everyone still has to laugh along and nod along like no one's business. <laughs> Did you ever imagine that when you started out that first time at stand-up, your first time on open mic, I think it was, I read that you did, that it would lead to the King of England referencing you? Oh, it's surreal, isn't it? Bizarre, bizarre. And in your case, when you first sat on the bike, did you think... I'm going to win six Olympic gold medals. No, well, that's it. I watched ET. I watched ET and I saw BMX bike and I thought that looks fun. <laughs> and at no point did I think this is going to lead me towards, yeah, talking to Germany's company ambassador to the UK <laughs> you know, on a podcast. <laughs> Amazing. Weird so twist what, and turns. What, exactly. So going back to that first stand-up gig, what, that was in England. Was that right? It was early 2000s. Yeah, that's yeah, what, that was, what gave you that idea? What, what made you want to, to get into comedy? Well, I was at the time, I was living in, in Greenwich in, in South London, and I walked past the pub and they had a sign, sign outside saying tonight's stand-up comedy. And I'd never heard of stand-up comedy, but I thought, oh, I wonder what that is. Let's have a look. And it was a really low-key affair, and I thoroughly enjoyed the concept of what I saw. Then I thought, oh, I wouldn't mind giving that a go. And then treated the headliner on the day, Gary Delaney, just uh, when he just started out, so I treated him to a beer. And he wrote me down a few phone numbers of open my comedy gigs. Then I picked up my phone, arranged the first few gigs, and that's how I got started. And but you make it sound so straightforward and simple. I mean, it, 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 to me, it sounds like one of the most terrifying things to to walk into a room to to just go for it in front of people you don't know. You don't know what their sort of sense of humour is. You don't know what their their takes are in life. But you, you just. Well, what sounds very bad for me is being on a small on a small track with another six people and everyone jostling for front position. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> it's what you're used to, isn't it? So, and yeah. uh, because they don't chuck you immediately on in at Wembley Stadium. So, you, you, <laughs> you, 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 the first gig I did, there was two or three people in the corner of a pub. There was a dog. The dog barked essentially throughout everyone's set, and. Uh, that was it, but I, it felt plausible. That's all. That's the best I can describe it. I was on stage and I thought, this feels plausible. 
I give this another go. And then it just slowly developed into, uh, well, go, went through the stages. It was a hobby, then became a paid hobby, then a well-paid hobby. And then I had, was a crossroads, I had to make a decision. I said, well, let's turn this into a shitty paid job for a while. <laughs> <laughs> But it must have taken off once you, you you kind of break through and you're invited onto the panel shows and you you become a regular. I mean that that must have stepped it up exponentially. You must have then things must have really hit the big time at that at that stage. That's interesting you say that because I would say in hindsight there wasn't a single there wasn't a single event that made it. It was all like a, it's not like. You're being plucked from total obscurity, and then you win Britain's Got Talent or something. But they're all performers. Uh, uh, say Big Brother, where someone goes in with really yeah. so get plucked from obscurity, then win Big Brother. It's not like that. It's more like a continuous development, I would say. So it's a slow, steady grind where you're yes, kind of making improvements, and you just got to keep that that hard at work ethic going and get a break and then get another one and keep it. Yeah, and you don't even see this breaks. It's just stuff that happens along the way. But there must have come a moment, I mean, apart from the King Charles moment, there must have been a moment where you kind of pinched yourself and thought, hang on, how how have I ended up in this position here? This is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, talking to you now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if you take it, if you, I mean, just talking, being able to talk to you is bloody amazing. Oh, well, to listen, before we came on, we were Matt and I were chatting. We were very excited. I mean, yeah, we're, we're playing it cool. We're trying to play it down, but actually, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're both massive fans. So, uh, yeah, we're equally excited, aren't we, Matt? You're, you're, yeah, you're one of the um, comedians that my wife and I completely agree on in just stitches. The second you're on the screen, doesn't matter what it's oh. in, it just seems to send us to pieces. And I think Chris is similar, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's yeah, since we started doing this podcast, it's just basically a... a a thinly veiled excuse to, to meet all our comedy heroes. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're delighted that, that you're here. We don't actually put it out there. It's not a podcast. Just a little Zoom, Zoom chat. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for inviting me on to episode number 167. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're really scraping the barrel now, aren't we, Mark? When, when, when you started in the comedy, were you working in football? Were you working because you worked for a football club, didn't you? Yeah, I worked for Wickham Wanderers. Yeah. Uh, come on the chair, boys. Very exciting season ahead. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so they, they see, they, they, I, I always worked in uh, sports back home, and the company I was working for back home was about to go under. Now, I looked at my CV, looked all right, but I didn't speak English other than very basic school English. And I thought, no, I need to do something about this. So I applied to all the 92 league clubs in England, and... Uh, Managed to get managed to get a few interviews and then ended up with a job with Wickham Wanderers in the marketing. So and that it's was incredible. incredibly, incredibly lucky because, I mean, say about my English what you like now, but I really did not speak English back then. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it about the UK that, that, that attracted you? You know, you could have if you didn't speak the language before you came over. In theory, you could have gone anywhere. Yeah, but the idea was I wanted to learn English, so uh, going no, to that yeah. no good. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. And, and then my first impression of Britain was um, the weather is much better than the, rep than, than the reputation. Because I had the idea there is fog everywhere and all the time. And I remember I got to Britain in, uh, in March 02, and uh, I immediately bought a bicycle 
and then uh, was living there in, in High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire. And uh, the weather was fantastic. It was a fantastic Easter and everything. The summer was great. And I thought, this is so much better than what everyone back home is saying. <laughs> you must have got lucky. I mean, this, this, this summer in particular, I mean, last month or six weeks has been oh, horrendous. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it's like where you are, but it's been raining here nonstop. But you said, uh, yeah, I read, I read a quote saying that you came to the UK for the good weather and the great food and the classy <laughs> women, I think it was the other thing you said. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so what, have your opinions changed on any of those things? Or are they... <laughs> no, it's all top notch, no. all top notch. <laughs> great to hear it, great to hear it. Chris, how many times a week do you still uh, get out on the bike? Well, I try and get out on the bike basically whenever I can, but just with work and with family life and everything, it's quite tricky to get out on the bike. So I do a lot of the just indoor static bike stuff um, on Zwift, you know, the, the virtual yeah, yeah, platform. Yeah, yeah. Um, but when I get the chance, I'm just, I'm just getting into gravel biking, which is I thought was a bit of a fad, a bit of a new thing. And I, I thought like, it's just cynical marketing. But actually, they're brilliant fun, you know, getting away from the cars. I mean, yeah. in Germany, you obviously you have so many the proper segregated bike lanes in Europe in general. It's much better than it is in the UK. But getting on, you know, gravel paths, you know, farm tracks, things away from the, the traffic, you can switch off that part of your brain that's always on high alert for, for things like buses or taxis or, you know, cars coming past you. And then you can have a bit of fun. So I, I try and get out on the gravel bike. Um, I don't ride the velodrome that much anymore, maybe only a handful of times a year. And it's usually for a specific event or, a, you know, a filming or whatever. But I, I love it. And it's great that when you finish, a lot of athletes finish their professional careers and they don't want to do it anymore. They've had enough and they're sick of it. But for me, it's, a, it's just a lovely sign that you, you still have that love affair with the bike. You still want to go out. You still have the ability to go out on your, by yourself. You can go out and ride on your own. You can have a bit of peace and quiet. You can go out with friends. You can do sort of rides like you've talked about, the point to points, which are amazing. Or you can just use it to get around on. Yeah. Do you ride them with mates that you used to race with? Yeah, I do a little bit um, when I, whenever I can. And it's, yeah, it's funny how some people have really kind of kind of gone into it and kept it going really seriously. Others have completely not touched the bike and are getting back into riding the bike just because they're feeling really unfit and out of shape. Um, but no, it's because I was a sprinter, because I didn't do massive mileage on the bike um, normally when I was training. And I never really got sick of it, if you like. I never got bored of riding the bike. It was still something that I really enjoyed. So, yeah, it's great. And, you know, having little targets to train for, having a purpose, um, you know, you'll have I do sort of rides with, with people at certain times of the year, whether it be people come to ride for a weekend with me. So you want to be fit enough that you don't get dropped in the hills. And you, yeah, you know, yeah, the worst, yeah. Everybody wants to beat you. That's the thing. It's like, kind of, you know, even though I've been retired for 10 years and I wasn't a road cyclist, they still want to say they've beaten me up a hill. So yeah, 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 yeah. You, you've got to be relatively fit. To, You're like to... the big bloke in the pub, aren't you? Where everyone wants to have a go the big bloke. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly like that. And it's, it's it's bad on Zwift as well. It's my own fault. I put my real name on Zwift so people can see it's me, but they still want to, you know, you can be doing intervals. So on your the rest part of the interval, you're just cruising along and someone will come past you and take a screenshot and go, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, Was there not a point, Chris, when you retired that you put the bike away for a few weeks and didn't ride it at all or did you did you always no, no well not really it was i guess it's only when you're traveling if you're traveling and you know, we went away to australia for this amazing trip before we had children and i think it was eight weeks so we went to various parts we did a driving holiday in australia and so you didn't have the bike with you then so i started running 
thinking I'll keep fit. You know, it takes some trainers much easier than bringing a bike and all the kit. And then I injured myself within about a week. So I thought, yes, yeah, cy- uh, cycling's a much safer thing for a, for <laughs> yeah. a big, big, heavy lad like me. Running's not a great idea. So much better on the knees, isn't it? When exactly. you ride, when you when you ride, do you wear a do you wear a crash helmet? I do. I do. It's, it's funny. It's quite a contentious topic, really. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of victim blaming and psych- or if there's ever road traffic collisions and there's a cyclist involved, the first question the media always asks, well, did they have a helmet on? You know, is it the cyclist's fault? But, you know, you go to places like Germany, on the continent, in Europe, where the lowest risk of or lowest incidence of, of head injuries and, and serious accidents with cycling is also the lowest um, use of helmets. So, you know, it's it's more about the infrastructure and saying, well, I always wear a helmet just because it protects my, you know, stack the odds in your favour. But I think, you know, it's you're made to feel as if if you don't wear a helmet, you're pretty much asking for anything you get. And it's it's your fault if you do get hit by an HGV. Because Sean Yates, he used to live before he moved to Spain. He lived here, Hastings, Becks Hill. Oh, yeah. And, and he was always riding around without a helmet so that everyone could see him. And... Uh, <laughs> He looked absolutely majestic <laughs> going on, on his bike, but you still thought, okay, you have got much bigger, better bike handling skills than I have, and if you come off, you know how to fall much better than I do. But still, if a car mows him down, yeah, it's, he, he, I mean, he came down by car. People have come from an era, so they didn't have to race. It seems bizarre now, but in the Tour de France, they didn't use helmets until, I think, the early 90s or mid-1990s. I think Fabian Casotelli died in, on a stage, a really tragic accident, and his head hit a, a bollard at the side of the road, and that was the point they thought, well, enough's enough, we have to you know, enforce helmet use. But before then, it was your choice. And when you're riding up a mountain in the Alps and it's 35 degrees and the heat and everything, you think, well, they, they chose not to, but but now, you, obviously, you have to. I remember yeah, Sean, Sean, Sean Yates used to descend at sort of, I mean, 60 miles an hour without a helmet. Yeah. I mean, he, he was one of the most daredevil descenders of the lot, yeah. and he'd never have a helmet on. I used to yeah. find... Yeah, just incredible yeah. to watch it. Or but... the helmets where the old bunch of bananas helmets, like just basically foam. What is that going to do? It's going to stop yeah. you scraping your hair. But um, no, it's, I mean, Sean Yates, he was famous because he used to sort of pull his shorts up really high. He, had, he always he liked having his tan lines, you know, not a, a classic cycling tan line. So he used to have his shorts almost all the way up. Um, but he's still going now. I mean, he's he's a legend of the sport and he still does big mileage and he's involved with a lot yeah. of the, the, um, the kind of these rides that you can pay to go and ride with the uh, former cyclists. He's involved in those. Yeah. And he coaches as well too. And and yeah, he's, yeah, he was one of the, one of the heroes in this mid nineties, yellow Jersey winner when the two yeah. came to the UK back in, was it 94 maybe? Can't but anyway, yeah. Well, yeah, the helmet usage thing, it's a, it's a very contentious issue, but um, personally, I just wear one whenever I can, because you think, yeah, why not stack the odds in your favor? But it'd be lovely if you could ride, more frequently in places that you didn't have that fear of having to ride alongside big heavy trucks and cars and stuff, you know, providing more safe ways. And then more people would cycle because it is, it's just the, the biggest thing that stops people wanting to ride a bike more than the hills, more than the wet weather. It's the safety. So if you made it safer, people would, would I think, flock to riding their bikes. Well, what's what? quite funny on that, uh, on that trip that I did now around uh, across Europe, the most dangerous part, really, was getting back from uh, New Haven back to Hastings. So that was really. It's <laughs> sad that, yeah. I hear that a lot. I mean, it, what, what were the did you see attitudes change throughout Europe, or was it was it just 
all the same in Europe and different in the UK? Uh, well, what you have got is obviously saying the Czech Republic, all the boy racers, or what would be boy racers, they're on the bus. Bus driver boy racers, though, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there is just fewer cars around, for one. And uh, say you go through rural France, I mean, you see a car every 15 minutes. When they overtake, they've got two lanes to do it on uh, because there's no car coming the other way. And uh, it's just generally more relaxed and then you get to the uh, to the southeast of, of England then it's well it's a bit of everything isn't it it's the, it's the road maintenance on the one hand so the number of potholes so you can't really you have to ride in the middle of your lane just to allow for wherever the next pothole comes yeah and uh, then there is more traffic that means overtaking is harder for the cars and then there is not with a lot of drivers not really an understanding of what it's like to sit on a bicycle I think cycling has really exploded in popularity in the last 20 years in the UK, and it's it's that sudden increase in participation that's taken the rest of the country by shock, whereas in Europe it feels as if it's been such a, a, a long, slow burner. There's been decades for them to get used to seeing people out on bikes. It's part of the culture. Everybody's got a bike. They haven't got a three grand, four grand carbon fibre racing bike. They've just got a bike with a basket on the front they use to go down to the shops or pop to school or whatever. So it's part of your daily life. But in the UK, it's still seen as this new kind of thing that middle-aged men do and they wear Lycra and it's, 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 it's a, a kind of hobby like playing golf or something. It's just something you do. Um, so I think we're still adapting to cycling in the UK. It's not something we've fully kind of um, embraced yet, if you like, or not everyone has. But, and, and, and to be fair, the, the infrastructure is getting better, isn't it, with the Sustrans... Uh road uh, cycle network or in in london with the number of of cycle uh, uh, lanes and all that and the things are are better than they were yeah it's improving it's getting there oh. but it's the thing i don't like is it's the whole them and us you know the way the media portray you can't just be discussing it there's no sort of middle ground there's no gray area it's all black and white it's all you're either for us or you're against us <laughs> and they love it they love kind of riling up that that you know the cyclists versus drivers rivalry Henning I wondered on your on your cycling escapade you just went on if you had any sporting misadventures on that journey or did it go relatively blemish free or well I'm yeah I would say it went blemish free um I didn't take a toolkit, which what I got when I, I had no puncture repair kit, which I got ridiculed for. And I said, well, I'm riding, I'm riding Schwalbe Marathon. If I get a puncture, I stop cycling. So that will then never get a puncture. And then, uh, and I was, abs I was proven right on that one. So I went the first three, four days with people from the Hastings Bike Club. They joined me to Belgium. And they were on their fast titanium bikes and uh, with the slick tires. It was pissing it down. It was about four degrees. And once every half hour, we had to stop because someone else had a puncture. And then I thought, okay, when you're, when you're riding, you're going faster. But in reality, over the course of the day, you're not. You're just <laughs> in the freezing cold in the rain. So, uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, uh, of the Schwalbe marathons, I must say. 
the hare and the tortoise, isn't it? You know, you got to yeah. just just keep moving. It's not about the high high speed stuff. Just keep it rolling. Exactly, exactly. And uh, misadventure? No, I'm. See, when I can't do it no more, when I'm knackered, I stop. So that's like, I'm not one of them that tell you, I mean, Chris, you obviously, in your profession, you must have done it. You know how to suffer. And you go, I don't want to do this any longer. And then you do another three hours. And that's <laughs> not me. The moment I say I don't want to do this anymore, it's, it's game over for the day. You should um, take up track cycling, Henning. That's, that's why I did it. You're always indoors. You never get rained on. You're only doing maximum race for me was a minute. So, you know, even if you're exhausted, you've only got to do it for a minute. Then you can go in the track centre and you can sit down, get a drink, have something to eat, have a natter. It's great. It's much, much better than all this, you know, riding up mountains for hours on end. You're really selling it to me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's that easy. And you can't get lost either. You just go, you know, just keep turning left. It's, it's easy. Have you, you ever come, you go the wrong way on the track? Well, in the Southern Hemisphere, they obviously go the opposite way, um, so that that causes problems at the World Championships. But um, no, it, yeah, we do once, once um, or once or twice. We used to we did the uh, the warm down at the end of a training session, clockwise, just to see what it was like. And it's very strange because the track isn't; it's not actually symmetrical. You assume that it's exactly the same the whole way around, but the entry into the corner is slightly less shallow than the exit, and so it feels weird. You're you're you think you sit on the bike completely. Um, symmetrical, but you, you, there's a slight lean in, and certainly in the corners, you kind of you, you angle your body weight to the left. So it, everything feels strange. And yeah, we do it for a laugh. But the worst is when you try and do a, a time flying lap, like a flat out effort, the wrong way around the track. It just feels, it's like, I don't know, like trying to brush your teeth with your left hand or the opposite hand of what you normally use. It just yeah. feels so wrong. But yeah, it's track cycling is one of these things that you, yeah, you should definitely have a go at some point if you get you in, get you how, get you on the track in Glasgow. In fact, the World Championships are up in Glasgow starting this week, so it's, it's going to be massive up there. They've not just got the track; they've got the road, BMX, mountain bike. In fact, a sport which is quite big in Germany. Have you heard of artistic cycling? Oh, Kunstradfahren, yes. Oh, that's how we, that's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> So none of, nobody's heard of it over here, right? And you, I tell the people that I speak to, say, have you heard of um, art, artistic cycling? Um, and yeah. they're like, no. And they show them a video. They go, oh, my, that's amazing. It's like people riding what look like track bikes with, you know, fixed wheel, no brakes. Yeah. But riding around, no hands, on balancing on one wheel, it looks like synchronized swimming on bikes. Yeah. And it's massive. And like, Germany is a bit like handball. They're, it's one of their top, where they're one of the top nations in that sport. It's a bit like Tom Pitcock, whoever done it, who, who essentially done the Batman pose on his <laughs> yes. on his road bike, isn't it? I mean, that is just something. Else. You know, <laughs> how do you get back into the saddle? With <laughs> well, it was all right though. He'd crossed the line. He'd won the race. But yeah, <laughs> it's these. It's the synchronization of it, and yeah, it's just it's quite bizarre to see how how, how do you even get into that sport? I wonder. I mean, it must be an offer because there's all these national teams, but in the UK. As far as I'm aware, there isn't a single club that, that does it. So it's just not something we do over here. Yeah, need someone who is a fan of it starting it, isn't it? And then on the, on the local level. And then, like, for example, fencing, all the, all the, all, all the German fencers, they all come from the same town. Uh, they're all from Tauberbischofsheim uh, because that's where someone who was interested in that sport started it up. And then uh, the, the schools offer it. And no, no one in our school did fencing because that just wasn't a thing. But where is then Tower Bishops? And they'll all be fencing. 
When did your sporting journey start? I think I read somewhere that it was a cross-country skier was your first sporting memory. Is that right, watching with your dad? Mm, well, I, I can remember in the days before before climate change, uh, there, was, there was days every winter when you could cross-country ski to school. So, but them days are long gone. That wouldn't happen any longer. But I think you watched the 1980 Winter Olympics, I read somewhere. You watched some German guy competing who was going for a medal with your dad. Do you remember that story? No, I remember... Man, your research is terrible, Matt. Come on. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> extensive I mean, research. 1980, for starters, that was the Moscow Olympics, wasn't it? Yeah. So Germany didn't even take part in that, as far as I understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, wait, I've got here a Jochen Bale. Jochen uh, Bale, yeah. yeah. That was, he was a cross-country skier, and then... Oh, yeah, and then the... Uh, the, uh, he was doing very well early on in the race and then he disappeared and they, uh, he wasn't on camera any longer and then the commentator was going, voice bail, voice bail, voice bail and that just become a, a phrase back home, voice bail, so where is, where is bail? And uh, the reporter getting all worked up about it, so. <laughs> and what happened to him? Well, he lost time on the others and oh. come 15 minutes later or something. Let us say down. Yeah. Let's decide down. Was your sporting watching football then? Because you, yeah, had, yeah. I mean, I remember a good nation to cheer for. The first, uh, the first sporting event I remember watching live was uh, Bochum versus Braunschweig, a football uh, a top flight Bundesliga in uh, 1980. By the point I was five, five years old. So, and then I've always, I've always gone and watched football, and uh, they still to watch still my my favourite sport. I gotta say. Um, What's it like supporting a team that actually does all right every now and again? I mean, I'm Scottish, so I can't talk. It's not like I'm taking the mickey out of English fans or English team here. But, yeah, I mean, what what's it like to win the World Cup as a fan, to, to support a team that wins the World Cup? Well, see, when I grew up, you just took it for granted because the first tournament I remember is the 1980 Euros. We won that. In 82, Germany was in the final. 84, OK, group stages. But in 86 in the final, 88 semi-final, 1990 won it, 92 in the final, 94 last eight, 96 won it, 98 last eight, yeah, 2000, let's not talk about that, 2002 in the final. So you're just used to being, it's like more now is the absolute oddity, when in the last three tournaments you go, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, welcome to our world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Scot Scotland make the finals. It's like this is it. We're, we're we're celebrating. We're here. It doesn't matter what happens. We've done it. We've made yeah. the finals. Yeah, and that is, I absolutely love it. I wish I was Scottish. <laughs> my, my, at, at the Euro Lower your expectations. Yeah, celebrating that nil nil win over England, and <laughs> <laughs> we're still celebrating it now. Actually, exactly. yeah, we'll talk about it. So when the World Cup is on, do you find yourself getting drawn in for lots of comment on, you know, do you get more gigs? Is there, is there more of interest with the, the German-English rivalry? Well, it's a double-edged one, because I'm blocking my diary for when the World Cup or the Euros are on, because you don't know the fixture list yet. I'm definitely not working when Germany or England play. Germany because I'll be hammered. England because I just don't want to chance it. And, and, and so therefore I tend not to take any gigs in that period but in the build-up you're absolutely right there might be like the odd can you write us a commentary for about this a, a column for this or that so and or, or like that trip to uh to south america with mark watson in 2014 so anything like that 
And do you find yourself supporting England when they're not playing Germany now? Do you feel you've been living here long enough that you... I couldn't possibly comment? <laughs> no, there's barely anyone listening to this anyway but there's definitely no German fans so you can tell us it's say, just between us don't worry yeah. what I would say is the current England setup are very likeable yeah that's true um, that makes it it makes it really difficult to dislike them I don't know Chris what, what are you doing about it yeah do you know what I've well I've been living in England now for probably over half my life I've been down here. So I'm 47. I've been, I moved down in 99. So I've actually spent more time in near Manchester than I have living at home in, in Edinburgh. So yeah, I, I think when you, when you're young and you're living in Scotland, you're, it's kind of this, the, the, it's part of the fun, isn't it? The kind of the rivalry and you love to take the mickey out of England. You love, you know, it's this a sort of jokey, you know, we don't take it seriously, but yeah, of course, when England are playing, you want whoever they're playing to lose. But then, as you spend more time down here, my kids were born in, in Manchester. You kind of say, Do you know what? As long as they're not playing Scotland, yeah, I'll chew them on. I've, I've kind of got over that rivalry thing. I like to celebrate being Scottish rather than sort of putting down England all the time. I'd rather just say, Do you know what? I'm proud of being Scottish and I don't have to reference England in every, every sentence when it comes to uh, the, being Scottish. Yeah, no, that's, that's very mature. But I know from a personal point, like if, if, when people ask me, how does Brexit affect your life? Well, not at all. But if England were to win the World Cup, that would definitely affect my life and not what <laughs> better. So, <laughs> yeah, the important stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, what, exactly. are, what are you like watching Germany? Are you, are you a nervous, anxious kind of supporter? or Usually you go in there and you're full of confidence. Yeah. You know you win. You're going to win. You don't know when, but you know you will have won the game by the end. And that's disappeared. Now you turn the tail on and say, oh, not that lot again. What, what's gone wrong with Germany? Because it's been a, a, a few years now, hasn't it? There hasn't sort of been any consistently high results the whole time, which is what you've grown to expect. Yeah, it's like they were, it's a complex issue. Uh, starts with managers. I mean, they're, they're always the easiest to blame, aren't they? So, uh, and it's, it's the whole setup is uh, the whole setup is wrong. It's, it starts with in the in the in the youth in the youth development squads where they didn't find a single centre forward or centre back. So all it was about fine creative players. And now we have got about 20 players who can pass the ball nicely, but there isn't anyone who can finish a move or win a tackle. <laughs> so, and then you can criticise the managers all you like. But then on top of that, the few players that can do that, they are not being picked because they're not playing for one of the glamorous sides. So it's, uh, I mean, where do you start? You really wonder who writes the squad list. Do they need signing off by Bayern Munich first? I don't know how for what. But it's, it's a very dire, very dire state of affairs. And now bring you in to sort it out. Yeah, exactly. That's what they need. Maybe they just need a bit of cheering up in the in the dressing room before they go out on the pitch. I think they've got far too much cheering up. <laughs> <laughs> was it not? Was David O'Doherty, um, was it the Irish rugby team or football team he went in to speak to? Yeah, it was the rugby team. He went to rugby Andy team. Farrell and his fellow coaches and spoke to them before, I don't know, Six Nations that they went on to win, yeah. which was quite there cool, I thought, as an idea. There that you go. is that's, annoying. That's what you need to do. Get yeah. in there. Sort out the jet. Well, don't sort them out too well, but, you know, give them a little bit of boost. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought we need to, we need to send in the Grim Reaper or something. But <laughs> <laughs> So when you, when you were at school, when you were a kid, um, you know, we said you were more of a chess chess champion than a basketball champion, but... 
did you did you enjoy sport? You know, you, did, what 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 was it like when you were growing up, and what sports were you into? Oh, I, I joined my local football club aged six. So, uh, yeah, always played football like that. And, you know, football and cycling, walking, running, all them. Table tennis, there was a phase when I when I played a lot of table tennis. That's good fun. And, and was it all positive? Did you have any, any misadventures when you were when you were young? Did it, things that put you off certain sports or did you just generally enjoy it and have fun with it? I'm mediocre in anything I touch. And... Uh, but that's, that's the thing. Say, in stand-up, if I, if I can compare that, in stand-up there is, some people aren't overly good at it. And they're at the, at the, at the entry level and never progress beyond that. And then there's people saying, oh, they shouldn't be doing gigs because they're not good enough. That lead never, that never lead, then lead on to anything for them. And then I said, but that is a bit like saying, that, so it was obvious when I joined my football club, age six, that I wouldn't turn professional. That was obvious immediately. That would be then someone walking in there. No, he's not allowed to play football. He'll never turn professional. So uh, everyone just enjoy what they do. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? I think there's a lot of... Is it because of people like, um, I don't know, the Williams sisters or Lewis Hamilton or these amazing athletes that have gone on to be the greatest of all time in their sport? Or Tiger Woods is another example. You know, their, their parents got them into it at a very young age, got them a golf club when they were three or a tennis racket when they were four. And they were out training and winning tournaments by ten or five, and so parents are kind of, or the assumption is, right, you've got to get them in if they're going to be Olympic champion in twenty years' time. They've got to be going right now, and it's, it's just, it, as you say, it's, it's all about this. You know, are you going to turn professional? Are you going to make a career out of it? When really, sport, it's just all about having a fun thing you can do that's good for your physical health, good for making friends. I mean, sport has to be the best way for kids to to make new friends because you. You all know the rules. You just get on, you play, and you, it's a way of playing together and then making new friends. And that's, you know, that's, it's all part of life, isn't it? Yeah. Like I remember I, I used to work as a ski guide uh, in, the, in the Alps. And, um, and I would guide people around, and then they would ask me technical questions on how to technically improve their skiing. And then I always said, What do you want to need? What do you need to know that for? Look at the scenery. <laughs> so I say, yeah, I say you're 40 years old. You're not going to turn professional. How do you? Why do you need to know this? <laughs> and and a, some people, a life coach. That's what you should be doing. That's that's yeah. great advice. Some people got it. Some people didn't. I mean, yeah, but I need to technically. I said, why do you need to technically? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though, isn't it? Because you always want to be better, or you want to improve. I think if you feel as if you if you improve your skills, then you're going to somehow unlock a new level of experience and enjoy it more, appreciate things more if you're able to do this or this or this. Like in motorsport, I do a bit of motorsport as a hobby now, and unlocking the skills to be able to enjoy what this car can do. Because you know when you first get in a really powerful car, it's like, well, I can only scratch the surface of what is capable. But if I can become a better driver, then I can enjoy the fact it's got this amount of power or it's got this suspension setting or aerodynamics or downforce but i guess yeah i think it's instinctive in us we all want to improve don't we or, we, or a lot of people just want to get better but you're right for what you know what you're here to enjoy yourself to get some fresh air look at the beautiful mountains just yeah. don't worry about 
whether you're carving through the turns the right way or whatever, just enjoy it. With, with the skiing, I have that example because my kids now, and they're getting almost better than me. And I realize I'm going downhill with my level of skiing and, and it actually doesn't matter. Just seeing them flying past and being excellent is- It doesn't is kinda, sound like you, but nice. it's okay. It sounds like you've got a-, a I'm, working, I'm working through it, but this is like yeah, my can- cancer yeah. with you two. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't let them beat you, Matt. Come on. <laughs> They're Don't too give good. in yet. They're too we good can for me. Just get a bit of coaching, you know. Get Henning, a do you still ski? Do you still ski or not really? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That is, uh, that's one thing sadly missing here. Um, and not that it's your dry, uh, dry ski. Slob never been on one. Um, yeah, that, that's I miss that a little bit. But yeah, that's uh, that's a superb hobby. Have you been up to Scotland much in your time in the UK? Uh, well, I'm there usually every August for the Fringe in Edinburgh. And yeah. then, uh, so I worked out the other day, effectively, I've lived two years of my life in Scotland. <laughs> accumulation of August. Um, I think I can hear it in your accent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you going to Edinburgh this year? Right? Excuse your ignorance. No, first year since 2004, then I'm not going. Is that because of your travels and everything? Or? Yeah, my tour finished in April and I didn't feel, uh, I didn't think I would get the new material turned around quickly enough uh, in time for, for Edinburgh and then go straight back out on another tour. And then are you, you talk when you tour writing. again? Oh, sorry. I'll take notes constantly and then I've got a pile of notes which I then occasionally type up, print out and then I sit here with a folder of about 300 pages of uh, of printed stuff and when it's time to put a show together i flick through it and think well is there is there is there a kernel of a good idea and then find four or five of them and then see how that can develop into something and once you've done uh like a, a tv special or you've you've done your material in a high profile place it's been out on tv or um widely um seen how does it feel when you've got to basically put that material to bed and you can't use that going forward and you you know, it's like, well, that, that's great. I was successful with that. I've got to start again afresh with something. You really have to, though. Well, I don't know. That's that's what a lot of people seem to seem to approach it. Like, well, once you've done a, a Netflix special, it's like people want to see, want to hear different jokes, but maybe not. Well, I think what wouldn't be right if you were to market something and give it a different title, and then it would be the same stuff. I think I that would be borderline fraudulent. But... <laughs> um, I think generally speaking, well, how I tend to do my, my shows is in the first half is old material. Then in the second half is the new shows. So I'm my own support act. So that means there's always half an hour of old settled material in the, in the first half. And the way I look at it, if you go and see some band, you have got certain ideas what you what songs you want to hear. And I know comedy is slightly different because obviously the element of surprise is gone by the time you heard it three times. But, yeah, generally, so say if you go and see Mickey Flanagan, you want to hear him do his out-out routine, don't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, you're right. Or Billy Conley, you know, it's the kind of, you, there's certain, you know, certain stand-up routines that you just want to hear again and again and again. You never get bored of them. Chris, uh, I have got a few questions for you here because I did oh, say on the... Uh, just before we went on, I said, uh, I'm doing a, a podcast with you. Is there anyone from the bike club? I'll put it on the WhatsApp. If anyone wants to know, anyone's got a question, <laughs> just go through them, yeah? Fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. So Paul Iscock wants to know, what size chain ring and rear cock do you use or did you use? 
did I use right? So in this is properly geeky stuff. I love it. Um, in the old days, like when I was racing, I would ride the biggest gear. I would ride would be fifty two, or maybe fifty three fourteen, fifty three in the front, fourteen in the back. But now, so in the ten years that I've been retired, they're riding sixty five twelve. The sprinters. So the wow. gear sizes have absolutely exploded. It means that they're going a lot faster, but the cadence, the, the rate of pedaling has dropped from maybe averaging around 150 RPM down to maybe 110, 115. So the rate of pedaling is much slower now, but the torque, the force application is much higher. So it's more efficient. They don't slow down at the end of, even in a flying lap, I'm used to sort of peak going through the first corner and you would tail off at the end, whereas now they maintain the speed much, much better. So yeah, super geeky question, but great stuff. Love it. This is the most technical we've got on this podcast. So how what 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 started that that change? One or two individuals from different just certain countries that had ideas and thought, let's try it. And initially, when it happened, we thought it was just that athlete was just a freak of nature. And well, it wouldn't work for everyone. He's just got incredible strength, so he can get away with it. But it's not going to be the way to do it. But now. For as an example, the junior under eighteen um, girls are riding gears way bigger than I was racing um, in London twenty twelve. So it's it's completely it's shifted the the sport on, and it's it's not just in sprinting. It's happened in the in all the track events. Really, the gears have got much much bigger just because they've realised it's more efficient, and um, it makes sense. But the, the the reason we didn't use big gears before was because we thought if you can't get on top of the gear, if you can't accelerate that gear, it takes you longer to accelerate. And you might not even reach that peak speed. So um, it was, I, I guess, just we never really tried it properly. But once you do, it's, I tried a, a big year two or three years ago just for a lap. I was on the track, had a, had a go. And I got to within a tenth of a second of my lap record time at some outdoor track um, in Newcastle just, just by using a bigger gear. So I should have, I should have done that. I should have known. But you look back, it's, it's like anything. You look at sport, you look at, you know, Dick Fosbury, Fosbury flop, or anybody who comes up with a new way of doing something, um, it's it's only obvious once they've done it. And you kind of go, oh, yeah, we should have done, we should have known. But um, yeah, it takes somebody to give it a go and to actually be successful with it. And then it leads the way and everyone follows. Like in the Tour de France, when they start on the time trial, changing their bike before they go up the hill. Yeah, it's, it's great. I, and Or even going back to one of the, the first people that really inspired me in cycling, Greg LeMond, in the late 1980s, when he won the tour, the 89 tour against Laurent Fignon. He won it by, I think, eight or nine seconds at the end of the three weeks. And in the final stage, it was a time trial. Normally, it's that procession down the Champs-Élysées, yeah, yeah. they're all drinking champagne and all that. But this was a time trial for once. And um, Laurent Fignon had, I think it was a thir- roughly 30-second lead. And he should have been fine. But he... He rode without an aero helmet. Yeah, he had a really. ponytail. He didn't use the aero handlebars, um, the triathlon bars that, that Greg LeMond decided to use. And yeah, all this new technology, which was kind of scoffed at a little bit by the French purists. You know, that's not traditional. That's not the way we do it. You know, Eddie Merckx never had that. So we, we don't need to use it. And LeMond beat him and won it by eight seconds. So, you know, that was... It, it takes it takes one or two individuals to really succeed, and I think that's that's when the the mindset changes and everyone thinks right. We've got to try this too. Well, then next question: uh, Have you ever done? Kim Kim is asking this. Have you ever done a cycling event that you're not particularly suited to, like a seven day stage race in the mountains? <laughs> <laughs> yes, is the short answer. I went to as a junior. 
I finished the National Track Championships in Leicester in 1994 and then jumped in a car and we drove flat out to make the ferry across to Ireland and I rode the Junior Tour of Ireland, which started the next morning. And it was seven days in hell for me. It was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> and it was basically just it confirmed my suspicions that I wasn't an endurance athlete. And this, you know, any any thought that I might be able to do the Tour de France or, or go down that route on the road, become a road sprinter, it was it was quite a a tough old week, but I, I still enjoyed it in a kind of perverse way. I suffered the whole way. And the thing they used to do as well, juniors were only allowed to race for 65 miles. That was the regulations, the, the maximum distance. But to get around that, because they wanted to go through as many villages as possible in Ireland and go through all, it was sponsored by the credit union. Um, so they were trying to get through as many credit union um, places in, in the Ireland. So they'd have like a 20 or 25 mile neutralized zone before the start of the race but it was still run at race pace so you'd, you'd go and you'd be riding for an hour flat out and then they'd sort of drop the flag and say stop okay everyone stop okay go be like what have we been doing for the last hour you know clearly we've been racing <laughs> so yeah i got to the end of that week absolutely exhausted and very very much um clear in my head that i was never going to be a tour de france rider mm. now next question gareth wants to know do you prefer racing a bike or a rallycross car? Oh, great question. Um, right now, I prefer racing rallycross cars because I'm old and past it, and uh, I wouldn't have the engine, as in my legs wouldn't, wouldn't be strong enough or fast enough to go. They're, they're two completely different things, but I enjoy them both equally. It's just it's so exciting. Rallycross is great. It's where you go from short, short circuits, half of it's gravel, half of it's tarmac. There's six cars or eight cars in the grid. You all bounce off each other. There's jumps. It's absolutely chaotic, but brilliant fun. But equally, there's nothing quite like being the best in the world at something. And if you know when you're at the top of your game and you win a bike race, um, and velodrome racing is always exciting and fun to do anyway. But when you when you win an Olympic gold medal or something like that, there's nothing I've experienced in, in sporting terms that's that's come close to that, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's nice to have the, the rally cross, rally cross, another motorsport as well. Just now. So how, you've got a, a, quite a few questions. Is this like um, the whole the whole club that have come back? I'm quite impressed that they're actually. Uh, it's great preparation. Yeah, yeah. It's, you're more you're better prepared than we are. I, think that's <laughs> <laughs> I would have expected nothing less. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the final one from Sue. Sue, she's just come back from. Uh, she done a race in Norway, uh, like a, a gravel race. It was thousand. Oh, wow. Thousand kilometers uh, uh, in the middle of Norway, and she wants to know: Would you consider a bike packing adventure now? I would. I would. I would love to. Yeah, it's it's one of these things. I'm trying to find a way to wangle it in as a as a work. I mean, like you were saying before, when it becomes work and you've got to film, and then it takes away an element of the fun side of it. But I guess it's when you've got I've got two young kids just now, and trying to find time away just for me to enjoy myself on the bike is, is quite tricky but if we could find some way to make it work I don't know if, if, if it was we could do as a podcast we could do as a podcast I'm available a comedy a, a, a famous German comic and, and <laughs> yeah. you Matt and me if we could get the three of us perfect. together it's perfect we've still I'd be well up, for, yeah. well up for a bit of that yeah I think uh, to me the thought of going point to point across beautiful countryside um, and not not having a time schedule or a race to get from place to place just it's it's the dream isn't it nice weather nice scenery nice company eating nice food and as you say when you you kind of 
if it's more fun to be on the bike than on the sofa, then you, you get on the bike. And if it's if it's the opposite, you stay on the sofa. That's yeah. that's that's the way to do it. Yeah. So when you go by yourself, how far are you going and at what average speed? Um, it would depend on, basically, it's how much time I've got. So I would tend to only go out on the bike if I had two hours window to, to go out for a ride. Because anything less than that, you've got to get the bike out, your kit mm. on, fill your bottles, all the fat before and after. So two hours is kind of minimum. And it would depend on if I'm on the flat or the hills. If I want to go steady, I can go steady. If I want to go hard, I can go hard. That's the beauty of it now. I don't have to follow a program where today it is certain amount of average power or certain number of efforts or, or whatever. It's just ride as you feel. So some days you do really want to dig in deep and hurt yourself and you know see what you can what what you can do going up a hill, see how fast you can go, or it might be I want to stay on the flat. I want to just go for a ride, stop for a coffee, and ride home. And that's what I love about cycling. It's so yeah, you can tailor it exactly to how you feel and what you want to do. Um, whereas when you're following a training program, it's very rigid and very structured, and you just have to do it. There's no choice. You just get up. What am I doing today? Bang, bang, bang. Get it done. Mm-hmm. Job done. Get some food in you. Get to bed. Well, Chris, Matt, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think you've asked more questions than we have. I know, but we've lost our jobs here, mate. We've failed hideously. We've failed you, Henning. <laughs> Henning, thank you. Listen, thank you so much. It's been absolutely brilliant to meet you and to chat to you. And, yeah, keep keep up the great work. Keep making us laugh. And, uh, yeah, if you ever want to go out for a bike ride anytime, seriously, please let me know because, um, yeah. You're south of Manchester, right? Yeah, Cheshire. But I can, I'm around the country all the time, different parts of the country. So if you've got any tour coming up this part. Have you ever done Hastings, Wayne? No, never. I've, I've been down, I was down at Lydon Hill, um, down near Dover, doing some rally cross last week. And the last time I was there, I took the bike with me and went for a ride around there. It was lovely around there. Lovely day. That's great for yeah. riding, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But if I'm down that part of the world, I'll give you a shout. Perfect. And, and vice versa. Yeah. Lovely. So, and Matt, you can come along too. Yeah. I'll, yeah. Uh, I'll make the sandwiches. You can yeah. drive the van. You can carry yeah. all our stuff. Set up the camera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Henning. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. All the best. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.